Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. The Republican Party has long billed itself as the party of family values, but not so much valuing the family. That's an insight taken from our next guest, Patrick Brown of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He says it's not enough for just to have the right views. We need concrete policy, and in particular, economic policy that supports parents and the family. Patrick Brown is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He formerly served as a senior policy advisor to Congress's Joint Economic Committee, and he's author of a column for the New York Times titled What Republican Parents Really Want. Patrick, welcome. Thanks, Todd. What do Republicans usually mean when they talk about becoming a parents' party? Well, we really saw this type of rhetoric take off last year during the midterm elections, and there was a lot of agitation around things like critical race theory and LGBT content in schools that I think got a lot of parents up in arms. And so Republicans, I'm thinking specifically of Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, but others as well, really started to position themselves as being the party of parents. And that often took the form of things like school choice or curriculum transparency laws in public schools. And I was in favor of those. I think that's a great start. But being a party of parents requires more than just uh, school choice or, or more input into what books are in your kids' classrooms. It really comes down to recognizing parents' values and also their pocketbooks as well. And so as Republicans have grappled with what it means to be a party of the working class and a party of parents, it's time for them to start thinking about the traditional policy preferences might not align with what the polls say parents are looking for from policymakers. So how has the overturn of Roe v. Wade accelerated this trend? Well, it's definitely part of the conversation. I think pro-lifers and social conservatives in general are frankly pretty tired of the old line about, oh, you guys are only pro-life until the baby's born. And certainly in a post-Roe America, after the Dobbs decision was handed down, a lot of pro-life politicians have recognized the need to not just focus on the supply side of abortion, you know, when we're talking about you know regulating clinics or setting a threshold, you know, six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever that is, but also thinking about the demand side factors that cause women to seek out abortion in the first place. And a lot of times, especially for low-income and working-class women, those are economic pressures. And so I think that conversation is intersecting with the conversations that have already been going on on the right about family policy and, and how to best strengthen parents in a really interesting way. Why are parent-friendly values not enough? Well, they're definitely part of the conversation. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient. And, you know, like I started the conversation talking about critical race theory and some of these other sort of hot-button issues, certainly those get people motivated. They push people's buttons, totally understand why politicians have focused on them. But in a sense, it's playing to the base. 
it's activating people who already agree with you and, and getting them even more fired up. And, and sometimes, you know, reaching across the aisle when it comes to things like trans athlete bills and some of these things, so those can have support across the aisle as well. But fundamentally, if you're talking about a Republican coalition that's increasingly working class in its orientation, the parties are sorting along educational lines. So college graduates are increasingly becoming uh, affiliated with the Democratic Party and parents without a college degree are increasingly voting Republican, that it, it just talking about values is, yeah, again, not, not a full picture because working class parents especially are feeling the strain of raising a child and, and having a family. And so if your policies aren't reflecting that reality, you're kind of only flapping with one wing. You need to be talking about culture and economics. How does this coincide with the Democratic Party's apparent abandonment of the working class voter? Yeah, I think you know, it's certainly fair to say that over the last decade or more, certainly uh, under President Obama and continuing, the Democratic Party has really focused on sort of lifestyle issues and a, and a progressive agenda that reflects the concerns of, as I'm saying, you know, educated voters with a college degree or master's degree, which tend to focus more on these identity politics issues than the sort of bread and butter economic populism that used to be the core of the Democratic Party's agenda back in the days of Dick Gephardt or something like that, right? And, and and in some respects, I think President Biden is doing his best to try to straddle those two strains of the Democratic Party, both the sort of contemporary focus on identity politics issues, but also talking about blue collar work and, and industrial policy jobs for men without a college degree. Uh, you know, that's something that I think President Biden perhaps is uniquely suited to have that conversation. But at the same time, Republicans are honing in on that turf. We saw this with President Trump. We saw this in the polling data where voters without a college degree have swung wildly towards Republicans. And again, part of it is because of a culture issues focus, but also that emphasis on work and blue collar labor and this idea that elite ideology is sort of not reflecting your values. I think that's something that, that resonates with a lot of folks across the political aisle who didn't go to college and feel like the sort of pointy heads in D.C. are, are using words like birthing person instead of mother. And that doesn't really reflect their values. And so it's an opportunity for conservatives to really seal the deal and say, we're here, we're not just fighting for your values and what you hold dear, but we're fighting to put more money in your pocketbook at the end of the day. And I think that's a winning message for a lot of folks. What do Republicans need to do to begin crafting family-friendly economic policy? Well, it begins with listening to parents and understanding that sometimes the voices that get the loudest megaphone in Washington, D.C. are there because they're reflecting the interests of groups and activists and that sort of thing. Going out into the field and just talking to working class parents, you'll hear a different message than is presented from some of the more maybe Tea Party, limited government style groups in D.C. who say, oh, families just want government to get out of the way. That's not true. That's not what we see in the polling data. So talking to parents without a college degree and listening to the fact that they say, hey, look, we would love a larger child tax credit. We would love more help when it comes to keeping our kids safe online. We don't want to just have it be the Wild West out there. Those types of issues resonate with parents across the political spectrum. And so if Republicans are serious about it, they should get out of the D.C. bubble, talk to working class parents, and recognize that the sort of country club style of Republicans, which 
tended to have the dominant hand on what got into the political agenda. I mean, back in the days of Bob Dole or even George W. Bush, those Republicans have either left the party or aren't calling the shots anymore. It's a much more working class friendly Republican Party. So that's going to bring a, a different set of issues to the agenda. Let's talk about a couple of those particular issues one by one. Why is improving the child tax credit needed? Well, the child tax credit is our most pro-family provision in the tax code. It recognizes that parents bear the cost of having a child through diapers, to childcare, to food, to a bigger house, to a bigger car, all the things that come along with you know, the expense of having a child. And so the child tax credit is our very modest way of saying, look, we want parents to have a little support socially. It started off as a way of reducing the taxes that parents are owed back in the mid-90s with a deal between President Clinton and the Republican Congress, and it's been gradually expanded over the years. And so now you know, most families who owe federal income taxes at the end of the year get back $2,000 on their taxes. If you don't have federal tax liability, if you're somebody who's maybe working, uh, making twenty, dollars $30,000 a year, you don't benefit from that, at least not in the same way. And so if you're a party of the working class, if you're a party of a family with a, you know, a low-wage parent who's doing their best to, to keep bread on the table, but also with a parent who, who might be staying home with young kids, they're not benefiting from the child tax credit as it currently stands. In fact, about one-third of kids grow up in families that, that don't receive the full value of the child tax credit. So moving that in a more working class friendly direction is going to be something along the lines that Senator Romney proposed last year, where he talked about making it a flat amount. As long as you have $10,000 worth of earnings, you will get the same amount that your neighbor down the street would get. And, and we want to encourage some connection to work. That's why you have that $10,000 earning threshold in there. But that would help broaden the eligibility for people who, who get this very tangible recognition that having kids is a lot of work and we should be doing our part to support it through the tax code. How do parents want children protected online? <laughs> that's a, that's a, a big question, but it's something that a lot of parents agree on. I mean, it's not just parents, it's everybody. When we polled in partnership with our friends over at the Institute for Family Studies and uh, the online polling form YouGov, we asked Americans if they thought it was too easy for kids to find sexually explicit content online. And it was off the charts. It was you know, almost 90% of people agreed. Parents, even more so, said, yeah, the internet is a wild west. It, it's a place where kids can inadvertently stumble on stuff that would make you blush. And so there are definitely concerns about it. These are not just exclusive to conservative parents. These are across the board. Even liberal parents don't want their kids coming across the equivalent of much worse than Playboy at age 12 or 13. And so that's a big concern for, for parents, but also cyberbullying and online predators and content that isn't age appropriate, all that kind of stuff that the parents feel adrift, either feel like there's no choice but to go cold turkey when it comes to the internet and say, I'm just not going to get my kid a cell phone at all, which means you know they lose out a chance to socialize and sometimes even you know homework is required to do online and that sort of thing, or feel like they have to open the floodgates. And so we want to give parents more tools to at least know what their kids are up to online, require social media companies to get parents permission before they open an account or give parents the tools to see what their kid is viewing and communicating with online just so they can at least have a sense of what their kid is up to and can have those conversations about what's appropriate and what's not. We want to put parents in the driver's seat. And I think that's something that really resonated, again, not just Republicans, but independents and Democrats as well. 
Patrick Brown is our guest. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We're talking about pro-family social and economic agendas. When we come back, what policies can Republicans put forward to help new parents? You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life his design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc., If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu. Talking about a pro-family economic agenda, Patrick Brown is our guest. He's author of the column for the New York Times titled, What Republican Parents Really Want. Patrick, what policies can Republicans put forward that help new parents? Well, the first thing that I would say is just recognize that childbirth is a time of extreme income volatility. Moms especially need to take time off of work to give birth and have a healthy recovery. Nobody wants moms going back to work a week after childbirth. That's not good for them. It's not good for babies. So that requires some time away from the workplace. It, it means your income is going to take a hit. And oftentimes, you know, dads will often want to take some time off to support mom as well. So there's a reason why we recognize childbirth as sort of a distinct time in parents' lives. And so a a paid leave program or a baby bonus, as President Trump talked about last week, there's different ways of structuring a program that recognizes that parenthood is, you know, again, it's not just the out-of-pocket costs, the cost of childbirth, the diapers, and all that sort of stuff. It's also the opportunity cost, those foregone wages, or maybe even a foregone promotion, or you're taking time away from your career when your kid is young. Those things are real costs for parents. So a paid leave program or a baby bonus program, something like that, that really targets direct financial aid at those first couple months of birth. I think sidesteps some of the bigger concerns about dependency and 
welfare and some of these other things. It just says, look, if you're a new parent, we want to get you some support so you can get started on the right foot. I think that's something that even fiscally minded conservatives can agree on. We'll focus on this very short period of life when everybody's kind of getting started. And then we can talk about the other things later. How can GOP policy encourage intact families? Well, it's a huge question. And if I had the answer, I would be a very rich man. (laughs) But there are steps that we can take. And I think it starts with recognizing that families basically boil into two key relationships, the relationship between the parents and the relationship between parents and their kids. And so whatever we can do in policy to preserve and strengthen those relationships, even when things go awry, even in the case of divorce and things like that, where families are are weakened, we should be prioritizing that. And so I really like the work that some governors have done, such as down in Florida, Governor DeSantis passed a law in 2021 with the state legislature, obviously, that would reform their child support system to try to get dads specifically more involved with their kids' lives. So if if a family does break up, you at least have that ongoing connection between dad and his kids. And I think that's so important to be talking about. And ideally, we would want to keep that from happening in the first place through things like marriage counseling and relationship advice and all those sort of things that I think civil society groups do really well, but sometimes you just need a little more support from the state. So figuring out ways to be thinking about building those connections between the parents and between parents and their kids and treasuring those is a way that I think benefits families, first of all, and also speaks to people's concerns. In the poll that we did, the top concern among parents without a college degree was the breakdown of the family and the rise of single parenthood and the things that make it so much harder, not just for kids growing up in an unstable environment, but for their parents because you don't have another spouse or another adult in the home to share some of those responsibilities with. If we can focus on those and and come up with creative ways for states to be addressing that, I, I think that's something that Republicans can really hang their hat on. Does our current tax code penalize marriage? Yes especially for parents in the lower end of the income spectrum. There used to be marriage penalties kind of throughout the tax code, and we've actually taken care of a lot of those for upper income and and middle income couples, which is great. We don't want to penalize anywhere if we're doing the right thing. If you're cohabitating and you realize, hey, look, if we get married, we're going to lose some safety net benefits. We're going to be paying a higher tax rate because of our combined income. That's a real impediment to getting married. And we know from the research data that's out there that a lot of single women specifically don't tie the knot because they know that they're going to lose benefits and their tax rate is going to go up. Now, some of this is expensive to do, but there are ways that you can move some of the money around so it's not directly penalizing marriage. In the earned income tax credit, for example, right now you get a higher benefit if you're a cohabitating couple than if you're a married one. And it's pretty logistically simple to pump some of that money into something like an expanded child tax credit, which at least gets rid of the penalty for being married in the EITC. So there's definitely ways to go about this. You can also talk about ways of in safety net programs, giving couples a little bit of a breather from some of those eligibility requirements after they get married, help them get on their feet and that sort of thing. It gets kind of technical, but the point is we should be talking about supporting marriage in not just in word, but in deed. And I think this is something that Republicans specifically have their finger on the pulse of the mainstream in the way that Democrats don't. We saw in our polling that especially college-educated Democrats are very reluctant to support policies to promote marriage, and they are more likely to say that marriage as an institution is outdated. But that's not what most couples are saying. That's not what most parents are saying. And if Republicans can really put forth 
a meaningful pro-marriage proposal that recognizes that policy gets in the way of people getting married, I think that will resonate, especially with low-income and working-class parents. So talk a little bit about the similarities and the differences between college-educated and non-college-educated Republican parents when it comes to these policies. So in general, Republican parents are slightly more skeptical of some of these ideas than Democrats. So that's natural. That's how the parties are, and that's partly why they're Republican. But a clear divide that we saw is that parents who identify as Republican or voted for President Trump in 2020 who do not have a college degree are much more open to the idea of things like a child tax credit or even funding for child care or some of these other tangible benefits, paid leave, for example, than their college-educated counterparts. They are much more open to the idea of paying for it of increasing benefits at the federal level, either by increasing the federal deficit or raising taxes on higher earners. That's kind of anathema to their college-educated brethren. And then they do share some similarities about the importance of marriage and getting rid of marriage penalties and protecting kids online. So I don't want to say that they're strangers in the night or anything like that, but there is a much greater willingness to spend on economic policy among non-college-educated Republican parents. And it's important for policymakers to recognize that, as we started the conversation with. The Republican Party of the 1990s and 2000s is very different than the Republican Party of 2023. And recognizing that, not just in rhetoric, but in policy as well, responds to what non-college educated parents are looking for, because college educated parents have increasingly drifted leftward into the Democratic coalition. So if you're building your agenda around getting government out of the way and trying to cut spending, that's not going to resonate with the sort of working class of voters who came out and voted for President Trump in record numbers. So can these policies be bipartisan? Yeah, definitely. Things like the a child tax credit with a connection to work, I think, would get support from both Democrats on the center left and Republicans on the center right. You would lose really progressive Democrats who say, no, it's my way or the highway. It needs to go to every family, regardless if they have a worker in the household. And you'd lose some of the more Tea Party inflected government shouldn't be involved in this in the first place Republicans. But I think a proposal like Senator Romney's, if it came to the House floor, the Senate floor of a vote, I think would get support from the sort of meaty middle, the moderates who, in some respects, are able to to put together a coalition if there's political will behind it. Now, there's a lot of questions about what could make it to the floor based on just the internal dynamics of each party. And I, I do think over the next two years, we're probably not likely to see a lot of bipartisan action only because a presidential election is coming up. And we know that in 2025, whoever is in the White House be it President Biden for a second time or President Trump for a second time or President DeSantis or whoever that might be, is going to have their own agenda and their own set of priorities. And if Republicans are smart, I think they'll prioritize this because President Biden's already shown what he thinks his vision of family policy should be. And it's not one that necessarily resonates with a lot of parents. You know, when you talk about things like capping childcare costs at 7% of income, well, that leaves out parents who don't have childcare costs because they have a parent staying home. So a robust Republican agenda, I think, could be a really interesting starting point for some of these bipartisan negotiations. And you'd like to think that folks on the left would recognize their merit as well. We're talking with Patrick Brown of the Ethics and Public Policy Center about a pro-family social and economic agenda When we come back, what family policies are seen by many as just going too far?
listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at M-E-L-H-S dot org, Jay Krause at M-E-L-H-S dot org. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues Etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about a pro-family social and economic agenda with Patrick Brown of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. In about 10 minutes, we'll talk with Ginger Duggar-Volo about her journey out of Bill Gothard fundamentalism. Patrick, we were talking about a a bunch of pro-family policies before. What family policies are seen by many as just going too far? Yeah, uh, there is definitely a point at which you cross the line from supporting families into being seen as trying to change people's behavior. I think that's where people start to get a little bit more questionable about the intelligence of some of these. I'm thinking of stuff that is sort of inspired by what we're seeing in Hungary and other Eastern European countries where, you know, in Hungary, for example, if you have four kids or more, you don't pay any income taxes or you have some of your student loan wiped out if you get married and that sort of thing. I think at least from my read of of the polling that we did, and certainly the general sense of things, that kind of stuff just doesn't sit well with Americans. We're a much more libertarian nation than maybe a smaller country in Eastern Europe, and we want to feel that people are making it on their own. There's not a lot of support for the idea that it is government's responsibility to take over the cost of childcare or childbearing. And we want to help people with the cost of living. We want to help people support their family, but we don't want to take that over or to be trying to incentivize people to have kids, paying people to get married, that kind of thing kind of rubbed people the wrong way, at least my read of the polling. And I think that there is a fundamental streak in in America that we just want to encourage people to stand on their own two feet. And anytime you're you're kind of overstepping the bounds of government in in doing so, I, I think you start to lose people on both sides. Is paid family leave popular? 
very popular across the spectrum. And the question boils down to how are you going to do it? And, and you know, we're not the first people who have pulled on paid leave. The, the Pew Research Center had a great poll looking at different options of paid leave a couple of years ago. And not surprisingly, the different parties' views of how to do it vary. Uh, Democrats are much more likely to support doing it through the government. Uh, Republicans are much more likely to support things like tax credits and other ways of trying to induce business to do it rather than using the government. But for the most part, there's widespread agreement, except for some very few diehards, that some form of paid leave should be available to working parents. And again, the question is how you do it. And I, I think Republicans, again, if you're talking specifically about parental leave, uh, you're having a, a new baby, you're adopting a new baby, that really pulls well for Republicans. The problem is when you start expanding that out into paid leave for personal sick time or to care for an elderly relative or even in the Build Back Better case to care for a sick neighbor or, or a community member, once you start expanding that definition further and further out, you basically see a straight line down of Republicans saying, eh, no, that's too much of an imposition on business. It's too much of a fiscal expenditure for, for government. Let's really focus this on new parents, because this is a time where, as I mentioned, families are especially vulnerable, and we want moms to have that time to heal physically and emotionally and all that sort of stuff. That is what gets the most support across the board. I think that's the highest likelihood you would see bipartisan movement on. Where could the National Party look to see at the state level where concrete pro-parent policy is already getting put in place? Yeah, I mean, I would say no state is doing it perfectly, but they're being the laboratories of democracy, and that's what's great about America. Blue states like California, Colorado, New York have already started rolling out different variants of a paid leave program. Some of them are designed better than others, in my opinion, but uh, they're at least sort of giving a sense of what that could look like. In red states, a lot of governors have started proposing getting rid of taxes on basic household necessities, like you know diapers, wipes, strollers, that sort of thing. I love that idea. I think it doesn't go far enough, but it's, it's a meaningful way of, of trying to put a little more money in parents' pockets. And then one of the sort of sleeper states that I love to keep my eye on is up in Montana. Governor Greg Gianforte up there has proposed not just loosening restrictions around housing, which is such a huge portion of families' budget. So if you're able to make it easier to build housing and, and keep the cost of housing affordable, you're going to help families indirectly, but very meaningfully. So that's something I love that he's done. He's also talked about a state-level child tax credit for young children. And this is something that would be unique because I'm not aware of any other sort of conventionally red state, Republican-led state, that has a state-level tax credit, uh, child tax credit. And it would provide direct funds for parents to provide childcare, whatever is going to be best for them, whether that's formal childcare or with a relative coming over or a babysitter or having a mom stay home or a dad stay home. Giving parents money directly is pretty much the most pro-family policy you could think of. And so if Montana were actually to pursue that and pass it, I think it would be a really strong signal to other Republican-led states that if we're serious about a pro-family agenda, let's put our money where our mouth is. What was the Biden administration's progressive agenda for the family, and where does it stand now? Well, if you'll recall, we had a big debate in 2021 over the Build Back Better legislation. And this was basically a wish list of every sort of progressive policy item that has ever been proposed, more or less. 
and the Biden administration split it up into two different packages. One became the infrastructure bill that ended up passing and it had money for green energy and, and infrastructure spending and that sort of thing. The other was the American Families Plan. And this had things ranging from the expansion of the child tax credit to capping child care costs at 7% of a family's income to universal pre-K to free community college and a whole host of other social spending that was aimed at making family lives easier. Now, i had a lot of disagreements with a lot of those policies. I didn't think some of them were especially well thought out. And I worried about the unintended consequences of things like the expanded child tax credit without a connection to work. But what can be said about it is that it was a full-throated, progressive approach to family policy. So there's no question about where progressives would like to see this conversation go. And again, I had significant issues with a lot of it, but at least it was a negotiating starting point. And they lost the House of Representatives. They weren't able to get Joe Manchin on board with a lot of that social spending. And so now it's sort of in limbo. The president will still continue to talk about it in in the State of the Union and his budget, but it's not going to pass, at least not in its current form and not anytime soon. And so it leaves the door open for bipartisan negotiations like we were talking about, where Republicans and Democrats can say, okay, we know where the sort of bold vision for progressive family policy is, and we're never going to agree to that. But can we pick out some pieces of that agenda, reforming the child tax credit to make it more working class friendly or giving parents more options when it comes to things like child care. Are there places where we can negotiate and try to move the ball forward a little bit, even if it's going to leave some progressives disappointed and it might make some more libertarian Republicans angry? I think there is appetite for that. But, you know, it may all just depend on what happens in the upcoming elections in 2024. Finally, why is the GOP, at least at the national level, why does it appear to be hesitating? Well, some of it is just the power of inertia. Republicans are still coming to grips with the fact that the party has changed from the bygone days. And there are a lot of interest groups in D.C. that push for a more limited government approach to policymaking. They say, for example, oh, we don't need a federal paid leave program. We should just empower workers to go out and negotiate for themselves which I think is sort of blind to the fact that a lot of upper income workers do have paid leave and that's wonderful. That's great. But for workers at the lower end of the income spectrum, often they have no leave whatsoever, either paid or unpaid because they might be working for a small business that makes them ineligible for uh, family medical leave that you get if you're working for a large employer and you certainly don't have paid leave. So there are horror stories of moms having to return to work when they're still physically in trauma from giving birth, but having to go back to work, otherwise we'll get fired. And that should really carry your heartstrings, because if we're pro-family country, that's really not very pro-family at all. And so Republicans, again, some of them are sort of trapped in a mindset of, well, let's just get government out of the way and, and workers can figure this out on their own. That, that's not a sufficient answer. And I do think it's to the credit of you know Republican senators like Marco Rubio, uh, certainly Matt Romney, uh, uh, Jody Ayers from Iowa, others who have put pay leave and other proposals out there to say, you know, are there ways we can kind of move our party in this more pro-family, pro-worker direction? It's still an ongoing process. Ocean liners don't change course overnight. But the fact that we're even having this conversation now compared to where the party was 10 years ago suggests to me that the energy is towards moving the Republican Party in a more pro-family direction. 
and matching some of the pro-parent rhetoric and the pro-parent culture war issues, which, again, I'm probably in favor of, with a meaningful pro-family economic agenda. I hope that that is on the horizon, and I really do think it is. Patrick Brown is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's former senior policy advisor to Congress's Joint Economic Committee and author of a column for the New York Times titled, What Republican Parents Really Want. You'll find a link to it and to the Ethics and Public Policy Center at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Patrick, thanks. Thought it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Ginger Duggar-Bolo joins us on the other side of the break. She'll describe coming out of Bill Gothard fundamentalism. Stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com. Do you know the fastest growing religious group in the United States? Is it Roman Catholics? Nope. It's not Protestants either. Rather, it's those who mark none on religion's preference surveys. They don't belong to any particular denomination. They still believe in some sort of spiritual being and reality, but they don't believe and don't claim adherence to any particular religious group. The March issue of The Lutheran Witness picks up the question of the nuns. To learn more, visit witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do. Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? 
contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.